Part of the scripture reading for today can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10 till the end of the chapter. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? There's a man at the front door, Trish whispered in the pre-dawn light. What? Shh, keep your voice down. So I stumbled as quietly as I could to the front door peephole where I saw a man. I crept away from the door and whispered, yeah, I see him. Well, what do you think he wants, she asked. Well, nothing good to be standing at our door in the middle of the night. We checked again. Still there. Hadn't moved a millimeter. Did he want to rob us? Was he a madman intent on murder? Do we wait for a knock? Do we open the door and confront? How do we protect the kids? Do we call 911? Now, where we live, by the time the police arrive, it's too late. Well, better armed than not. So I went to get my 9 mil. But it didn't take away our fear. It only made it worse. And so there we were, terrified of a man standing at the front door. Well, fear is nothing new. In Genesis 3.10, Adam explained why he hid by saying, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Until Adam ate from the forbidden tree, God and Adam walked together through the garden in perfect trust and harmony. But after committing that first sin, Adam learned fear, and he passed it on to us. And ever since, we have been dealing with fear and searching for security. David was no stranger to fear, neither was Saul. In 1 Samuel 21.10 through the end of chapter 22, God gives us a glimpse of each man's fear. Now David had a reason to be afraid. Saul had already tried to kill him twice. And Saul was afraid of David, but I don't think that his fear was justified. He was a jealous man. And as the first king of Israel... He assumed that his son would be the next king. But God had not promised that. Saul sees David's popularity growing by leaps and bounds among the people, and he gets angry. His jealousy boils over. Twice he tries to, to pin David to the wall with a spear. He even throws a spear at his own son when Jonathan warns David to flee away from his dad. So David flees to Nob at the start of 1 Samuel 21 two men. One is the king, and he's afraid of losing his life, his kingdom, and his dynasty. One 
is the captain of the army, the next anointed king, and he's afraid of losing his life. Both have fears. But one man has no fear of the Lord, while the other man has great fear of the Lord. Today, we will see how fear of the Lord helps us to trust and obey. And so our title for today is, I Will Fear the Lord. And I have three points. I will trust the Lord despite my fears. I will not allow my fears to lead me into sin. And my true security is with the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, there's so many things going on that cause us to fear. War and rumor of war. Threats of nuclear exchanges, recession, empty shelves. And yet, you're our God. You're in sovereign control over all these things. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would use this passage today to allay our fears and to help us to trust and obey. Amen. Our first point, then, is I will trust the Lord despite my fears. David goes to the city of Nob, to the city of priests, and he asks Ahimelech for supplies and a sword so he can escape Saul. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 21.10. Then David arose, and he fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. David wasn't even safe with the priests of Nob, and so he heads to Gath. When I first read this passage, my reaction was, can there be a worse place to flee? Gath was a Philistine city and Goliath's hometown. David is their mortal enemy, and he goes with Goliath's sword. David, what are you thinking? Well, all things considered, it might not have been that bad a decision. It was definitely a decision made from fear. But sometimes, fear makes our choices pretty clear. Like a while back, when a guy driving an 18-wheeler fell asleep and changed lanes into me. I had two choices. I could get squashed by an 80,000-pound truck, or I could drive the shoulder and the grass despite the chance of flipping the car. The truck was an immediate and existential threat. Flipping the car was a, only a possible outcome. Fear drove me to the shoulder. Likewise, David faced an immediate and existential threat by remaining in Israel. Saul was determined to hunt him down with an army. And so David had to leave Israel, but where? Now all of the nations, except the Philistines, were at peace with Israel. So he couldn't go to any of them for fear of extradition. And so even though the Philistines were mortal enemies, it was the only place safe from Saul. And the risk might not be that great. First, it had been several years since he killed Goliath and the Philistine soldiers with him. So there weren't a lot of witnesses. Secondly, they didn't have cameras back then. And third, he now had a beard and was no longer a ruddy youth. I think his fear of Saul catching him outweighed the fear of a chance discovery of his true identity. But a small chance of discovery is not a zero chance of discovery. 11 and 12. <clears throat> but the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Kish, king of Gath. Discovered. He didn't fool them. And if he feared Saul, he greatly feared Achish. 
See, in their eyes, he was a war criminal who had killed their greatest hero. And so all of a sudden, David is in dire straits in the hands of Achish. But if you look at 13 through 15, it appears that David acted crazy for a bit, and they just let him go. But there's more to the story. Take a look at the title to Psalm 56. Supplication for deliverance and grateful trust in God for the choir director, according to Jonathan Elam Rehokim, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Psalm 56 is specifically about this experience. And remember, these are the same people who tortured Samson. 56, 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for there are many who fight proudly against me. And so they beat David to within an inch of his life, but he did not despair. 3 and 4. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Well, powerless before these evil men, with no help expected from Israel, David feigned madness. So back in 1 Samuel 21, 13, we read, So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you've brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? And so David escapes by the good grace of Achish. Now, Achish could have had David beheaded, but he showed mercy to someone that he believed that had a diminished capacity. Or maybe he just wanted Israel to have a crazy king. We'll never know. The Lord works in mysterious ways. But David knew that his release was more than just the kindness of Achish. <clears throat> the title for Psalm 34 says, The Lord, a deliverer, a provider and deliverer, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away when he departed. In verse 4 of that psalm we read, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Here was a beaten man waiting for execution. He trusted in the Lord that despite his current circumstances, all would be well. Eight and nine. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. David had built a trust relationship with the Lord from early on. So whether fighting off a bear... Or a lion, sorry, Uh, whether serving the king, whether defeating a giant or fighting the -the run-of-the-mill Philistine, David had a lot of experience in tasting and seeing how good the Lord is. And so we too must develop that sense of trust from early on. Don't wait until a crisis to learn to trust the Lord. Start today by meditating on the word of God. The scriptures tell us that God is good and that he cares for us, Psalm 86.5. They tell us that he is sovereign over all things, Psalm 103.19, even over our fears and troubles. And they tell us that his plan is the best, 
1 Corinthians 2.9. And so then it's up to me to believe what the Scriptures teach. Believing that God is good and that He is sovereign and that He cares for me is a choice. It's an act of the will. When we choose to believe, when we choose to trust, this psalm teaches us that we will be blessed. Now that blessing may be an end to the troubles like David experienced when he was released. Or it may be a change in how we view our troubles. But that's how we deal with our fears. We bring them to the Lord and we trust in Him. Leaving Gath with no place to go. David heads back to Israel in 1 Samuel 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalem. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. And so the king returns and becomes the original Robin Hood, but it's still not safe. So he hides in a cave, but he can't keep his presence a secret. David's family knows that Saul's going to come for them sooner or later, and so they go to David for protection. And not just his family, word is spreading. The land is deteriorated, people are suffering, and they come to the king in waiting. Now just a few verses ago, David was beaten, alone, and awaiting execution. And now he's with his family. He's gathered an army about him. But it was hard living for his parents. And 400 men, their families, and their animals in a cave. Sweet aromas. So David moves on in 3 and 4. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And then he left them with the king of Moab and stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. One of the Moabite kings hired Balaam to curse the Israelites as they made their way to the promised land. The Moabites had conquered Israel for 18 years during the time of Judges. And yet David goes to Moab for help. I think he went there because David's great-grandmother was Ruth, the Moabitess. And he wanted to take advantage of that family connection in order to protect his parents. And with 400 men, I don't think he was concerned about extradition. Now, knowing that David is the next king, the king of Moab agrees to take care of his parents. But I wonder if the king of Moab was expecting a quid pro quo in the future. So another risky decision, but better than waiting for Saul to find him in the cave. Now, David knows that he's the next anointed king, but he has no idea what path will take him there. And so he asks for safety for his parents until he knows what God will do for him. Consider all that has happened to David. Taken from a pasture, anointed as the next king, musician to the current king, giant slayer, commander of the army, married to the king's daughter, covenant friend with the king's son, twice escaped spearing by Saul, beaten by the Philistines, escaped to a cave, gathered a small army, and he's now seeking refuge in Moab. He's risen to the heights, and he's fallen to the depths. What next, Lord? What does it mean to be the Lord's anointed, and yet to be on the run, hunted as a criminal? 
I think David's predicament demonstrates two realities that we face every day. There's the reality of our condition in space and time and the reality of our condition in God's sight. And from our human perspective, they don't always match up. I mean, I can see David asking questions like, what have I done wrong? Am I really the Lord's anointed? And then there's my personal favorite. Why me? But we don't see those questions. David received uh, God's word from Samuel that he would be the next king. And David believed the word of God. In Proverbs 3, we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. If David had relied on his own understanding, he would have seen the, the mess that he was in and he probably would have despaired. But he didn't rely on his own understanding. He trusted the Lord while waiting upon God for direction. There's a lot of scriptures that call upon us to wait for the Lord. I found nine of them in the Psalms alone, like Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. David knows not to give in to self-doubt and the fear of man. He and his men gather in the stronghold to wait for God's will. And shouldn't that be you and me when fear and anxiety come a-calling? But waiting's hard. We get anxious about what is next in God's plan. We want answers now, especially for issues concerning our kids. And that's so hard. We want the best for our kids. We want to spare them from the troubles that we've known. What parent hasn't had those fears and worries? Well, in Ephesians 1.5, Paul helps us through the waiting when he says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. We've been adopted. We can trust in our Father who is in heaven, our Father who wants the best for us, not just for us, but for our kids. We can trust that. And he will make known the path that we should follow. And that path is the best path, even when hard. But while waiting, we need to be in his word. From Psalm 119, This is my comfort and my affliction, that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me. Yet I do not turn aside from your law, I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. And once we get direction for what is next, we need to obey. And that's what David did in verse 5. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold, depart, and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So the word of God comes to David. And he obeys God's command. He leaves his temporary sanctuary and purposely moves into danger. It's an act of trust. See, he first looked to the walls of Gath, and then the walls of a cave, and then the walls of a stronghold in Moab. But he doesn't need walls. He just needs the Lord. So David departed. He obeys without hesitation, and that too can be you and me. We too can obey without hesitation, even when he asks hard things of us. But how? Well, obedience is based in fear of the Lord. But before we consider that in more detail, let's consider our second point. I will not allow my fears to lead me into sin. In Proverbs 3, 7, we read, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord 
and turn away from evil. In 1 Samuel 22, 6-19, we find Saul, a guy who did not turn away from evil. Verse 6. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. All his servants were standing around him. Saul's a Benjamite, and he's moved his court temporarily from Jerusalem, elevation 2,634 feet, to Gibeah in Benjamin, elevation 2,800 feet. And he's sitting under a tamarisk tree. Now, details are important. And this detail tells me that Saul was hot and looking for comfort. Tamarisk trees provide shade and cooling. So the trees secrete a salt during the day. And then in the evening, the salt absorbs water vapor. And the next day, they release the water, creating a natural air conditioning underneath the tree. And he's moved to a higher elevation to get cooler air. So there he is, trying to get comfortable. When he gets a report that David is in Harith, and now he's really hot and bothered. Did you notice he's sitting under the tree, surrounded by guards with a spear in his hand? Who does that? Only a suspicious and insecure guy. Saul can't even trust his own guards and advisors. And it all stems from an unwillingness to accept the word of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel tells Saul that his kingdom will not endure. It wasn't taken away immediately, but it surely wasn't going to Jonathan. Now Saul could have thanked God for the opportunity to be king. He could have repented in sorrow for failing to obey. But he's gotten used to being king. He likes the comforts afforded by the office, like sitting under that tamarisk tree and being waited upon, which is kind of ironic. The day they made him king, he hid in the baggage to avoid taking office. Fact is, he was a steward of the office. But Saul rejected God's decision. He was angry, and he lashes out with evil words at those around him. Verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? And so here's Saul's woe is me moment. I guess he's not sure of his servant's loyalty, and so he e uses evil words to chide them. First, Saul accuses his men of character so weak that they can be bought. And worse, he's credited himself, and not God, as the benefactor of all the good things in their life. Secondly, he accuses them of conspiracy. Verse 8, For all of you have conspired against me. And he gives three proofs of their conspiracy. There is no one who discloses to me when this, my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. But no one knew of the covenant between Jonathan and David. And the covenant they made was because Saul had it out for David. And then Saul says, and there is none of you who is sorry for me. No one is sorry for me. Here's the king with all the privileges of kingship. He lives in a palace with servants, and yet he sees himself as a victim. And he finishes with, or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. 
And so he claims his own son is behind his troubles and is manipulating both David and Saul to gain the throne for himself. So he's chastising his servants for all of the things that they did not do, but should have. But couldn't we say the same thing about Saul? He could have destroyed the Amalekites. He could have accepted David as the next king. He could have arranged for an orderly transition for the good of the people. But he did not. And he chose to lie to himself and to others. And he chose to listen to lies, 9 and 10. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Did Doeg say anything that's untrue? I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. Well, that's true. He inquired of the Lord for him. We don't see that in 1 Samuel 21, but Ahimelech validates it in a few verses. Gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Both of those are true. But Doeg shades the truth. See, he doesn't report that Ahimelech questioned David first. Or that all Ahimelech did was respond to David's requests. He makes it appear as if Ahimelech was the primary actor by making him the subject. Ahimelech inquired. Ahimelech gave provisions. Ahimelech gave the sword. Say that three times fast. Doeg, as Saul's chief shepherd, was a competent man. But competence does not equate to good character. Psalm 52, David says this of Doeg. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Saul failed to consider the source of this information about Ahimelech. He failed to consider if there might be a hidden agenda, like revenge for Saul's defeat of Edom or the death of the next king. His fear of David made him susceptible to lies. And so Saul puts Ahimelech on trial for conspiracy in 11 through 13. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest. The son of Ahitub and all his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, Now listen, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him? so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. Saul had decided upon Himelech's guilt before the trial began. He assumes the conspiracy has already taken place. But God's law requires two witnesses. In Numbers 35:30, we read, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. All we have here is the testimony of Doeg. And once again, Saul assumes that David is planning and committed to killing him in ambush. But the forest of Hereth was down south of Jerusalem. <clears throat> the land of Benjamin, Saul's homeland, was to the north of Jerusalem. Saul had little reason to go south. 
And so if David had planned on ambushing Saul, boy, he chose the wrong spot. Take a look at how Ahimelech defends himself in 14. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? And so his first thought is to defend David. David's faithful in all of his duties, and he has brought honor to the king. Saul, wake up. There's no conspiracy. Verse 15. Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. And so he answers Doeg's charge of inquiring for the Lord, of the Lord for David. He says, nothing new. This is my job, Saul. And he finishes his defense by chastising Saul. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. He says, Saul, don't you dare accuse me. Your petty problem with David has nothing to do with me. But Ahimelech's defense does not move Saul. Unjust accusations lead to unjust judgments that lead to unjust actions. 16. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand is also with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. So not a single murder, but a massacre. Compare Saul to Achish. Which ruler acted justly? And consider the guards. Would any of us follow an order like that? Well, the guards didn't. Verse 17 ends with, But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. And that was a good thing. When, when a number of believers express disapproval or concern over what you're doing, maybe you should think twice about what you're doing. The guards refused to slay the priests. But they didn't step in to protect them either. See, they too had fear. Future consequences can grow large in our minds. What will Saul do to us and our families if we protect the priests? Maybe we should live in the present. Maybe we should do what is right today without regard for tomorrow. Maybe we should let God take care of tomorrow. Well, Saul's fear of David has taken on a life of its own. If his guards won't do the dirty deed, how about the Edomite? 18 through 20. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also ox and donkeys and sheep, he struck with the edge of the sword. Overtaken by a blood rage, he commands Doeg to kill the priests, and then he calls for a ban on Nob. Now a ban means the complete destruction of the city and everything within it. And so the Edomite, acting under the orders of the king of Israel, kills off an entire city of priests and their families. Did that monstrous evil deed make Saul safer? Did it allow him to keep the kingdom? 
No. And, and don't miss the irony here. Saul lost the kingdom because he did not follow through with a ban on the Amalekites when God commanded him to do so. But he had no problem following through with a ban on his own perceived enemies. David's fear of Saul took him on a bruising journey in search of security. His journey ended in a forest without walls for protection, a place where he had to simply trust in the Lord. Saul's fear led him to kill children and infants. I don't know much, but I know that judgments made from anger and fear lead to consequences beyond our control. I don't think Saul woke up that day and said to himself, you know what? I think today I'm going to destroy a city. No. Step by step, Saul's fear of David drove him to speak evil words, to render unjust judgments, and to take unjust actions. Instead of avoiding sin, he welcomed sin as the solution to his fears. We all have fears. Some are real and some imagined. Not that it matters, as there's only one solution to our fears. And that brings us to our third point. My true security is with the Lord. 20 through 23. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you are safe with me. Abiathar flees to the king who has a heart after God. And David tells him three things. Stay with me. He says, you're welcome here. You have a place here. Do not be afraid. Your situation has changed and you can change your perspective. And three, you're safe with me. You have a guarantee based on who I am. In 1 Peter 1, we read, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We can flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can throw all of our fears and anxieties on him because he loves us. He welcomes us into his kingdom. He tells us that we have a place with him. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you worn out with fear and anxiety? They're a cruel burden. Jesus welcomes you to ex exchange that cruel burden for rest. And you can do so today. You can come to Jesus and just talk to him about your sin and about your need for forgiveness and about your fears and anxieties. Talk with him as if he's a real person because he is. And ask him to be the Lord of your life. Submit to him. And you will find rest. And just like David said to Abiathar, Jesus says, do not be afraid. He says it nine times in the Gospels. And I don't think it's a suggestion. I think it's a command. And so we have to ask, how can I fulfill this command when my life is filled with fear and anxiety? Well, I think David gives us the answer in Psalm 34 when he fled from the Philistines. Verse 4. 
I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. 9, O fear the Lord, you His saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want. Verse 11, Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I found 49 verses that command us to fear the Lord. But doesn't that sound strange? We deal with our fears by being afraid. It's confusing. But perhaps not fearing an almighty, eternal, omniscient God is living a life in delusion. Reality dictates that a sinner like me live in fear of God's judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The fear of the Lord so is partly based then on our being rebellious creatures before a mighty and holy God. But it's more than that. The fear of the Lord is also to be in awe of his majesty as in Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. And the fear of the Lord carries responsibilities. In Deuteronomy 12, 13, we read, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all of his ways and love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. What does the Lord your God require? He requires worship, to walk in all of his ways and to love him. He requires service, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul. He requires obedience to keep the Lord's commandments. And just as David promised safety to Abiathar, so does the Lord. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And that's a promise. No matter what are real and imaginary fears, like when I stood inside my front door, gun in hand, waiting for that stranger to break down the door. Looking through the peephole, he was still there. I waited a few more minutes and decided, enough's enough. I was going to open the door and confront this guy. So I looked one more time. He was still there, sort of. But his image began fading as the early morning light brightened. I whipped open the door to find nothing. We were afraid of a shadow, a trick of the pre-dawn light reflecting through the peephole. How many of our fears are just shadows? Use the fears in your life to deepen your trust in the Lord, and do not use the fears as an excuse for sin. Do you want to trust and obey? Then meditate on 1 Samuel 12, 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Let's pray. Lord, you have done great things for us. You've given us a wonderful world in which to live. You've given us wives, husbands, and children. And best of all, you've given us a great salvation 
by living a life of righteousness for us and by dying on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. Thank you, Lord. And we ask just one thing. Help us to trust and obey. Amen.